standard there of what they could potentially be. It's great after we went through first Samuel before and saw his struggles with Saul really messing things up. And now finally, as we come to chapter 6, David has established himself as the king over all 12 of the tribes of Israel. He's accomplished the capture of Jerusalem and establishment of his home base there. And it would become, and it is to this day, Jerusalem is the place where the Jewish people regard that as their place. It's very special to them, and David had just accomplished that and was building it. So things are going pretty well for him. If you were with us last week, we saw in chapter 5 how important strategy is in doing what God wants you to do. Because as we saw, the you know David's getting things built up, he's got the right place, but you know, the Philistines are attacking. And rather than just go fight, you know, David went to the Lord and said, so, what do I do? Shall I go out and fight these guys? That was a really smart move. God said, yes, go fight them. And he did, and he defeated them. But then he didn't fall back on nostalgia when they attacked the next time and go, yeah, I got this. I know what we're to do. Let's go do it. But instead, he again goes to the Lord and says, what now? What shall we do? Shall we go? Shall we do what we did before? And the Lord told him, no, this is going to be totally different. I want you to sneak around behind them, behind the mulberry trees. And then when you hear the noise in the mulberry trees, it'll mask your approach from the rear and you'll attack them from the rear. That was a different strategy and it worked just fine. So you think David is learning. So before we do something, we should probably ask God. But we come to chapter 6, he makes a mistake in thinking that he already knew how to do this. And what it was was concerning the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a little footlocker kind of thing. It's a little over four feet long and a couple feet deep, a couple feet wide. And God had had them build it in the wilderness. They carried it. It was in the holy place, the holiest place in the tabernacle. And inside the on the top of it, it had a had some angels, and it was called the mercy seat. Some gold on it. Inside the box, it had the original stones from the Ten Commandments. Actually, the second version that God had given them to speak of God's revelation. And then it also had a bowl of manna which, you know, spoke of God's provision. And then it had Aaron's walking stick that had budded to show how God anoints people to take different ministry positions. And so all that was in the box. The Philistines, well, the, the Jews previously under Saul had thought, we're going to battle against the Philistines. I think we should bring the ark with us for good luck. And so... All the other people around there were superstitious, so they were too. Well, the Philistines captured the ark, took it off. It didn't work well for them. It wasn't good luck for them at all. Everybody got hemorrhoids. So the Philistines, very wisely and kind of funny, they made some golden hemorrhoids and put them with the ark and sent it on a cart to go back into Jewish territory. Well, it had been sitting there for quite a while. So as we come to chapter 6, David's like, okay, I got Jerusalem. We brought the 
curtains to the tabernacle, which was a big tent, brought it here. We need to set this place up for worship, but how cool would it be if we brought the Ark of the Covenant back? And so he decided that's what he's going to do. Now, the problem is he didn't ask the Lord whether they should do it. He didn't ask the Lord how they should do it. He just did what he thought, this is logical. And ironically, he chose to move the ark rather than the way that the law had prescribed. He decided to use the Philistine you know, approach. If it worked for them, it'll work for us. And so he took his strategy from the Philistines rather than from God, and he got a carton. Well, we'll see what happens in case you don't know already. Beginning with verse 1, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, the top soldiers, 30,000 of them. It wasn't that he needed soldiers to go get the ark. The ark was already in Jewish territory. The Philistines wanted no part of it, but he just wanted to make this a great celebration. So big military march. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. So it's this holy ark, this holy box. And took a lot of people with him in order to do it. This is about eight miles or so from Jerusalem. It's west of Jerusalem where it was sitting. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahiah, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. So it had been at the house of Abinadab for a while, and they were having really good luck. So he thought, let's go get it, and saw that it was probably still sitting on a cart. But he goes, well, this is God's ark, so let's build a new cart for it. But God had told them, when you move the ark, here's how you do it. It's not like it's super hard to move. It's not a very big box. Most of us could lift a box this size ourselves. But, you know, God said there are loops in it. You put poles through it, and the Levites only are supposed to carry this thing. But he's like, well, you know, we'll risk hemorrhoids. Let's Let's just do it this way. And so... He gets these guys, and they're doing this huge celebration. Brought it out of the house of Abinadab in verse 4, which was on a hill. So they're going downhill, walking with the ark of God on a new cart. And David and all the house of Israel, verse 5, played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir, wood, on harps, stringed instruments, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. So they're like... Okay, God, we're going to make a a huge musical show here for you. And here comes the ark on on this cart stumbling down the hill. And when they came to Nehon's threshing floor, so that would have been more down in a lower area, Uzzah, one of the sons of Abinadab, put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. The oxen stumble, it rocks a little bit on the cart. I don't think a whole big cart's going to flip over, but it was just an instinct. Uzzah didn't want to see it fall, and so he put his hand out and just balanced it. Then, verse 7, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error. It was just a mistake. 
and he died there by the ark of God. And nothing would ruin a party quicker than a guy who's trying to help and God just kills him. And this just doesn't seem right, and it didn't to David. David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he named the, the place Perez Uzzah, you know, the outbreak for Uzzah to this day. Not only was David mad, he was afraid of the Lord. And so he's like, I'm not bringing this thing to my house. And so he goes, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? How can I do this? So he said, every time I see it, it's going to remind me of poor Uzzah. And besides that, I don't want to die. So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. But David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The Gittites were one of the, um, one of the families of the Kohathites. They were Levites. They were you know, people who actually were qualified to carry the ark. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Things were going fine for them as long as they did that. But when David heard that things were going well, he goes, oh, God's blessing Obed-Edom. So maybe, the, maybe we need to take another look at this. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. So it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord, now they got Levites carrying it. Every time they took six steps, they sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Barbecue everywhere. People are excited. David's dancing before the Lord in verse 14 with all his might. David was wearing a linen ephod. It's not like his underwear. It was Everybody wore a plain gown, and then he would wear his royal clothes over that. So he took off his heavy royal garments and was just um, wearing the same thing everyone else was wearing. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. So he tried to do it the way the Philistines did it, and it was disastrous. He, instead of seeking the Lord, he just thought, this worked well for them, it'll work well for us. So they're putting on this big production, great music happening, People are excited. The momentum, it's all going downhill. We're bringing the ark back to where it really should be. In the tabernacle of God, this is going to be awesome. This is like the cherry on the top of the Sunday of my kingdom. So he's completely stoked. And then all of a sudden, one stumble and poor Uzzah touches the ark to steady it. And he dies. And David's like mad. Finally, after he cooled off, he started thinking, maybe it's not what we were doing. Maybe it was how we were doing it. And so he reassesses his strategy. And that's a good thing to do. You know, whenever things aren't working for us, I mean, there are times when it's just randomly, some things just don't work because they aren't supposed to. But it, the, the smartest thing after you get over your bitterness and resentment, when something hasn't gone well, is to back up and say, is there something different I could have done? Is there a way in which I could have approached this differently? 
you either do that or you just become a victim. You just feel, oh, you know, leave it there. Poor Uzzah. We really miss Uzzah. And, oh, that was a great day, but it was a terrible day, and we hate it. In David's case, he reassessed his strategy, and he's like, I wonder if we weren't supposed to use Philistine technology to deliver the ark. Maybe I should have talked to the Lord. Maybe I should have gone to the Levites and said, is there something different we could have done here? That's what wise people do in life. You look at, like, there's the old thing, supposedly Einstein said that insanity is when you keep doing the same thing and expect different results. There are some people who just live their whole life that way. They keep doing what, they, what they're doing, and like I think Dale Carnegie or somebody said, if you keep doing what you're doing, you'll keep getting what you've got. Life is kind of that way. So at some point, we all have to make a decision. Do I change my strategy in order to try to produce um, preferable results? And that's kind of what he did. And now all of a sudden it's like, maybe we should have talked to God. Maybe we should have seen what he has to say. Most of us in our lives have had those experiences where we did something because it seemed like the thing to do. Maybe somebody else thought we should do it, or maybe that's normally the way that it's done. And we didn't bother going to God. Now, God wants to be intimately involved in our life strategies. Not because he wants us to do things in a particular way. He can do things any way he wants. But what God wants is a relationship with us. And if he wants to have a relationship with us, he wants us to be dependent on him. That's why in the previous chapter, he honored the fact that David asked him, he fought the war and won. David asked him again, he took a whole different approach to win. What won for you yesterday may not win for you tomorrow. And what is winning for someone else may not win for you. And that's the beauty of God, is that he goes, I can do things any way I want, but what I really want is a relationship with you. I really want you to listen to me. I really want you to ask me. I really want you to seek my word, as he ultimately did here, to find out, okay, how are you supposed to actually move this thing? And so he had to learn that lesson, and he did, and it ended up pretty well until we get to the point where he gets back to Jerusalem. And then he has a run-in with his wife, his his most recent one of his most recent wives, but she was also his first wife. Then she was married to somebody else and then he went and forced her to come back to him. She was the daughter of Saul. Um, her name is Michelle. So in verse 16, the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Everybody's hooting and hollering. Michelle, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. What was her problem? Now, she already had a little bit of an attitude. First of all, she was a princess who now her dad's dead. And now she was David's first girlfriend. And now she's just one of the wives among many and and a lot hotter concubines and everything else. And so this is a tough place to be. But she also didn't go out there and celebrate with him, which is a little unusual. But in her heart, she couldn't stand him. 
But what could she do? Well, they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the middle of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And man, it was a good day. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. He gave them a bunch of food. And then in verse 20, he returned to bless his household Michelle, the daughter of Saul, not the wife of David, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, Oh, how glorious was the king of Israel today. Aren't you special? (laughs) Uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants. And again, he wasn't dancing naked, but it was like, you took off your royal robes and you're just acting like one one of the people as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. David, I thought, took it pretty well. He said to Michelle, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house. Boy, rub it in. Like, yeah, sorry if you think your dead father was better at this than I am, but remember, God chose me to take his place And you would still be off in the middle of nowhere being a nobody if it weren't for me. And to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Look, I'm God's man. I'm Israel's man. They chose me as their king. God chose me as the king. Lady, who do you think you are? Well, yeah, I took you from the guy that you loved, but still, to put you here? You're living under my roof. I'm supporting you. Therefore, here's my conclusion. I will play music before the Lord. Don't tell me to turn it down. I'm playing it. This is what I'm doing because I know. And he's really kind of a jerk here. I'll be even more undignified than this. I'll be as undignified as I want. And I will be humble in my own sight. What? It's like, oh, look. You're treating me like this. You know what? I will be humble because I say I'm humble. I'm the king, man. So if you don't think I'm humble enough, I'm the one that decides who's humble. You don't judge me. I judge me. And I think I've had a pretty good day. Don't ask us. But everybody else says I'm awesome. But as for the maidservants of whom you have have spoken, of those young girls that were dancing with me, By them, I will be held in honor. He's like, it's funny, the young hot girls, they think I'm doing okay. Now, what's wrong with you, lady? You know, you should be grateful. Therefore, Michael, Michelle, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. It doesn't necessarily tell us if she was barren or whether he just decided, you know, all those dancing girls, my... My harem's getting bigger, and yeah, I don't, I don't need somebody who's getting middle-aged. Sorry. I don't need women my own age. So at any rate, it ends up pretty sad for her. Now, I look at this, and I go, okay, first, David really messes up. Another guy dies because of it. He gets mad at God. Then he does it right. Then they have a celebration. Then they come back. And his poor wife, who had been yanked away from a guy she loved, forced to come with him at the tip of a sword. And now she's a little bit, you know, having a rough time with this. 
And he just totally puts her down, pushes her into her place, and says, lady, I don't care what you think. I'm the king of Israel. And younger girls than you think I'm fine. So you let me be the judge of me. You're nothing. And, and then on top of it, like, and by the way, you're not going to have kids either. So it's hard to find a hero in this story, frankly. I mean, it was kind of dumb for Michelle to do what she did, certainly. It was certainly dumb for David to decide, we're going to move the ark, and you know what? We're going to use Philistine techniques in order to do it. That's just foolish. That was really a bad idea. He ultimately ends up doing it right, but then it creates problems for him later. So what is it that we take from all of this? What do we learn from all of this? Well, one of the first things to me that should resonate with us from this story is when what you're trying to do is serve God, you really want to hear from him as to how he wants to be served. You don't want to come with foreign expertise. You don't want to come and say, okay, all God wants to do is to be successful. So you have, and you hear all the time, we're going to make Jesus famous. You know, Jesus never wanted to be famous. He didn't care about that. He went from having a huge crowd to having almost no one. And he said, I've done everything I'm supposed to do. So if our objective is what works, then we're already in trouble. In my work, this worked great for a while, as long as you're not Uzzah. But we are so often prone to thinking, okay, we understand what God wants to do. Move the ark from A to B. Now, let's bring in the experts and see what's the best way for that to happen. And the problem is, God wants to do things his way. Not because his way is better, he doesn't care. For God, it's like whether it's on an ark or it's being carried, it doesn't matter. The point is that I want you to come to me for guidance. I want to lead you. I don't want you to learn to function without me. And one of the greatest hazards in our lives becomes when we think we've already got it down. Okay, I kind of know how this is done. We put ourselves into such a rut because what we're doing at that point is, I know what to do because of what I did yesterday. I don't have to ask God what I should do now. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing until it doesn't work anymore. But, you know, or better yet, I'll just ask an expert and find out what they say I should be doing. There are lots of people who are selling and pitching advice. God gives it for free, but you do have to humble yourself and ask him. And you do have to look at his word and see what he wants to teach you. Because the way God has designed the universe, he wants people to be close to him. And if he's going to have people be close to him, it means strategy needs to change. It means chances are what you're supposed to do and I'm supposed to do isn't automatically what we did before. And in the future, it's probably not just going to be to follow conventional wisdom and do what the experts say we ought to do or do what's even working somewhere else because what, what does working look like to God? Apparently, working to God doesn't look like the more people you have, the better, the greater things that happen. Oh, earthly success. He doesn't seem to care about that stuff. But we can fall into a trap where that's what we do. 
And certainly, when we do that, we don't need God anymore. We can, we can fall back on, oh, the time when God spoke to me 30 years ago, and now he's pretty much put me on my own, and I can do whatever I want, or I just do things the way most people do them. That's really dangerous. Um, people will be hurt. People can die because we thought this wasn't something that was really important to do it God's way. Let's just do it the way the experts do it. Let's do it the way that it's worked before. Let's even do it the way... He didn't automatically just do it the way they used to do it. The Levites were there, and it's like, okay, God's word says, here's what you do, so they did it. Now, I believe that for each of us, in every decision that we have to make in life, we need to be considering and open to, okay, God, what strategy do you want us to use here? Because it changes. It can adjust constantly. But he cares more about us being dependent on him than he cares about how we specifically do something. So this story reminds me of that for sure. But, you know, so, okay, yeah, don't, make sure that you pray. Make sure that you read the Bible to get wisdom. Don't follow the Philistines. All the great music and all of the great worship in the world won't change the fact if you're not doing what he's told you to do. Sometimes doing it wrong can look really... I mean, the music sounded better when they had the cart than when they were carrying the thing. It was simple and kind of corny and old school, and, but it's like, that's the way he wanted it done. Now, when we get to Michelle... I have, like I mentioned, I have some sympathy for her. I, when I look at David here, I do think he's kind of being a jerk in a way. I'm not going to elevate, yeah, that's exactly the way you ought to treat your wife. Yeah, they, you shut up, Michelle. Who, who do you think you are, man? He's the king. He can do whatever he wants. Okay, young girls like him? Awesome. That's the way it ought to be. The guy needs concubines. But, you know, when I look at it, I go, what happened to her? She ends up being barren. And as far as I'm concerned, most of what she said was probably right. But she quenched what God was doing through an imperfect person. And that's where it gets tricky. Because in, in life, you can look at anything that God's doing and you can find some element of flaw that's in it. Because God can only work through flawed people. So, I mean, I, this is a a problem that I run into personally a lot because I, my antenna go up whenever I see phoniness. And it's partly, if I'm going to do a, some amateur uh, psychoanalysis on myself, I grew up with mental illness in my family where people believed lies and thought that things were happening that weren't and all that. So I decided, man, I don't want to ever be that way, so I'm just going to stick with integrity and truth. But a lot of times, that makes people mad at you. A lot of times, people don't want to hear the truth. Like somebody told me one time, the little boy that said, hey, the emperor doesn't have any clothes, he didn't become the emperor. You never heard about that kid again after that. He was right, but emperors are still emperors. And, you know, I think that when you... Well, I remember in, when I was in seminary one time, we were... Some of us were... Students were standing around talking, and we were talking about Billy Graham and, you know, about how 
I can't believe he has liberals and Catholics on his platform. He's associating with crooked politicians. He's, it was easy to take shots at Billy Graham. One of our professors was standing there listening, and afterwards he goes, hey guys, let me ask you a question. He said, if you're down at the pier fishing, and you see a guy on the end of the pier who has a whole pile of fish that he's caught, and you haven't caught any fish yet, do you tell that guy how to fish? And we're like, ugh. So, see, it doesn't matter if you're right or wrong. If you, I'm sympathetic for Michelle, but at the same time, if you fall into negativity, it creates a fruitlessness in you. You will never be fruitful as long as you're looking for all of the hypocrisy in the world. And hypocrisy is everywhere. There's no doubt about it. And sometimes you have to call it out. But if that becomes the drive of your life, you know, like I say, once in a while somebody has to say something. I remember my mom when she grew up in Oklahoma and they were in this little town called Oni and they went to a little church with, you know, 30 people in it. And, and she, she came home from church one day and she goes, Mama, why does the preacher lie so much? And she's like, what do you mean preacher's lying? And she goes, well, he tells stories and he claims it happens to him, but everybody here in Oni knows it happened to the guy down the street. It didn't happen to him. And my grandma said to her, honey, them ain't lies. Them's preacher stories. <laughs> and, you know, that's the kind of adjustment that sometimes you just have to go, that's the way they are. I mean, God... You know, there are certain things that work, certain things that don't work. It usually, if you're going for the front runner, you know, you're, if you're judging whether someone's right or wrong based on how successful they are, that's never worked. That certainly isn't Christian. But at the same time, man, if I spent all my time trying to correct the stupidity in the church, in our culture, in our nation, in Congress, in elections, in everything else, then I would do nothing but that. And that's just not fruitful. That isn't something that ends up bringing someone to a good place. It ends up getting, you get more angry. And I do, I, I fight this battle all the time. Like I see the baloney and I'm like, I want to scream. But is that really fruitful? Is that what's really going to create something worthwhile? Ultimately, what you have to do if you're wise is you wait and let God deal with the phoniness. And he will. But sometimes he has a much greater patience with it than I do. I don't always understand why, but in reality, what's my responsibility? To seek the Lord, to be in his word, to figure out what he wants me to do, and I cannot waste my time trying to fix everything else that's out there. Michelle was right, and she was fruitless. Sometimes you just, you don't have to say everything that you see, everything that you know. Because people who are, have an, a power-hungry streak, they can just mess you up. They can just damage you, and you haven't really done anything. You seek the Lord, you stay in his word, you see what he wants you to do, and then you know, when you stand before him, it's with a clean conscience. I don't think he's ever going to, when you face the Lord, I don't think he's ever going to say, you know, you should have campaigned more, 
or you should have spoken out against those people more. Why didn't you shout down those Catholics? Or why didn't you do enough to destroy the Mormons or the Democrats or whatever? No, he just goes, did you listen to me? And did you find the strategy that I had for you? And there's a real freedom in doing that. There's an exhaustion and a lack of fruitfulness that comes when we're always trying to fix everyone else. It's a battle. I mean, you will go crazy if you just sucker for everything, everyone that's selling something. And really what it comes down to is an awful lot of everything that's out there is producing because it sells. There's an incentive for it. Ultimately, you just hear the Lord. You do what he tells you to do. And you be open to whatever his strategy is for you today, for tomorrow. And then you will be creating fruitfulness from your life in the future that won't be like getting exhausted trying to, you know, you can't keep up with everything that's wrong in the world. But all you can do is hear from God and be as faithful as you can be. And we fail. I fail all the time at this. Because it's like, whoa, look at that. And then we have to come back and like, what is God telling? What is, what is it that I'm supposed to do? He doesn't need me to change the world. He needs me to listen to him for what he has for me. And that's true for all of us. And it really is a very freeing thing to know that it isn't our job to fix everything that's wrong. It's our job to fix what's wrong in us. And then fruitfulness will be there, and he'll take care of the rest. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these stories and these lessons. And we see later David's tendency kind of deteriorated him and and ultimately kind of destroyed him and brought him down. Certainly his best years were when he was younger and he was relying on you, when he wouldn't lift a finger against an enemy like Saul. But Lord, we want that heart for you. We certainly don't want to use Philistine techniques to do what we think we're doing for you. At the same time, we want to hear from your word and in prayer as we seek what you want us to do and help us not to give in to any other critics that think we're not doing it right. We answer only to you. Will you please continue to use each of us, creating a strategy that's yours, trusting distractions for you to deal with. So Lord, thanks for loving us and for calling us and for being patient with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. If you need some prayer, there will be people down here in the front who would love to pray with you. If you're just not even sure what your connection with God is at this point, and you'd like to see God begin to work in your life in a different way, in a greater way, come on down and get some prayer for anything that you want. But ultimately, for all of us, let's stay focused this week on hearing from God. What does he want us to do? What does he want to change and moderate within our strategy to bring about more fruitfulness? And then ultimately releasing everything that's a distraction from that. And I pray that we'll all kind of make a step in that direction 